0: in many cases there are things that people say or things that people do that then interact with the triggers that a a partner may have that then start that conflict
1: hello and welcome to the daily helping with dr richard schuster food for the brain knowledge from the experts tools to win at life i'm your host dr richard whoever you are Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am really excited about today's guest, who is going to bring a lot to the table on relationships. Thomas G. Pfeiffer is Senior Editor, Ethics, and formerly Executive Editor at the Good Men Project. He holds a BA in English with honors from Yale University and an MA in English from the University of Illinois at Chicago. This is where he taught composition and English literature. His authored articles for the Good Men Project have topped 5 million page views and 15 million views, including pieces he's edited. He is a frequent contributor to Weston Magazine as well. His popular blog, Tom Aplomb, offers readers more than 1,000 short inspirational essays written over six years on his daily morning commute from Westport to Manhattan while he worked as an executive at a business information publishing company. Tom is also a professional book editor and ghostwriter, and he teaches creative writing at the Westport Writers Workshop, where he serves on the board. He is the author of two books, Why It Can't Work, Detaching from Dysfunctional Relationships to Make Room for True Love and What is Love, A Guide for the Perplexed to Matters of the Heart. And he is working on his first novel as well as projects for television and film. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited that you're here. And I haven't had on people who specifically focus their careers on writing. I have had people who, through life circumstances and whatnot, decided they wanted to write a book and tell their stories. But you really went through academia to become a writer. So take us back to that period. I know that you spent some time at Yale and you've done a number of really interesting things in the writing space and with respect to literature. But what was it about writing that was so interesting to you that made you want to do this for a career?
0: It's a great question. Uh, Above all, I just always loved it. I loved reading as a kid. That was my favorite thing to do. I always had my nose in a book to the extent that when my parents would call me to dinner, I wouldn't hear them (laughs) if I was reading something. Uh, And so I think that part of the motivation was that I wanted ultimately to create things uh, like the books that I loved to read whether that was literature or uh, biography or uh, whatever it was that I was reading and I was a voracious reader I read everything I could get my hands on so I loved writing papers in high school I took as many English courses in college as I could Uh, I got a master's in creative writing in graduate school Uh, it helped that I had a family member my oldest brother uh, Steve is a writer And he was a mentor in that regard and always encouraged me to uh, pursue my creative dreams, even though, as you'll learn from my career, I, I put them on hold for quite some time. And my middle brother, Jim, who's an attorney, also encouraged me uh, at that time not to go into the practice of law. Now, he's been very successful and he would probably advise differently <laughs> at, at this point, but he was, um, he was still an associate at his firm at the time. And I think that he felt, given my talents and my creative bent, uh, that I would be better served uh, not uh, going that route and, uh, and, and going more into a, a fully creative profession.
1: It is interesting what you said in the sense that, you know, you were the guy in high school that loved writing papers. And I, and I distinctly remember in you know, having a classmate or two that that was their bag also. And they were actually paying, or, or rather students were paying them to write their papers for them because <laughs> they, they disliked it so much. Um, I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned you were a voracious reader. Are there any authors or books in particular that you found particularly inspirational or, or really were central to, you know, what you're doing now as in your career as a writer?
0: Well, I think certainly during high school, uh, junior year, I had this wonderful English teacher named Julie Johnson and we read the Scarlet letter and we read Moby Dick and, uh, and literature from that time period uh, and I think, I don't remember whether we read Tale of Two Cities before that or after, uh, but I, I did love the, the novel with uh, huge, important themes and, and grand scope and, uh, and flawed characters and, and all of that. Um, and then in, in college, uh, I took a modern American literature course and read Lolita and was just blown away by Nabokov's use of language. Uh, he's a very clever writer, and I tend to, it, I tend in that direction, although sometimes I have to tamp it down because it, it interferes with with telling the truth when you're too clever, but, uh, but I was remarkably impressed with the fact that here was a Russian émigré, so Russian was his first language, French was his second language, and he wrote in English better than anyone I had ever read, and so I thought if he could do that, Uh, then certainly a native speaker could learn to to be a great writer.
1: Now, you were in college, you you went to Yale, you studied English there, you then got a master's degree at the University of Illinois at Chicago, but you mentioned that there was a time when you put your dreams on hold. Talk to us about that and how that transpired.
0: Sure. So, After grad school, uh, I went through a uh, summer publishing course uh, at at Harvard that prepared people for a career in book publishing, and I came to the decision to do that because I was very concerned that I would not be able to earn a living as a writer, but I wanted to be close to writing and the process, so I thought that working in book publishing as an editor would enable me to do that. Uh, I got a job at Random House. Uh, it was an entry-level job just like any other where you think you're going to be uh, immediately editing the great american novel and instead you're photocopying <laughs> what is definitely not the great American novel but but a uh, you know submissions uh, that uh, you know that that, that came in uh, randomly from people that you then need to write rejection letters for uh, i found book publishing to be a very frustrating business uh, a lot of it was who you know and and what connections you had in the in the writing world. And so uh, eventually I left Random House and I went to a couple of book development firms, uh, which were, these were people really more interested just in creating books that could sell. I worked on gardening books. I worked on self-help books. I worked on uh, photography books and things like that. And I also had the opportunity to come up with some of my own ideas because these were small companies where, uh, there was, there was a lot of creative freedom. So I really enjoyed that, uh, for the next few years. And then I was recruited to work in a completely different type of publishing company, a database publishing company, business information, uh, a company that, that published and still publishes today directories of contact information for leaders, across all areas of American activity, government, business, law, finance, media. And I was recruited to work there by a law school classmate of my father's. And I thought, well, this will be my introduction to the business world. And I will learn uh, what what the business world is like. And maybe I'll do this for a few years. And who knows, I could make some money and then maybe go back to writing. But I ended up working there for 20 years, uh, doing just about everything you could do in a company, from uh, management to sales to product development, uh, I was sort of—I I got to play lawyer uh, in in the company, do the trademark work and and things like that. And my dad had been a, a lawyer, so uh, that was kind of in my blood, and um, I, I had a lot of fun doing it. But after twenty years, uh, that company, like a lot of companies in that space uh, was not doing as well as it had done before. And I was one of the higher paid employees. So uh, they showed me the door at the at the 20-year mark and said, uh, you know, we're, we're done now. And I started looking for other positions and then figured, you know, I've always loved writing. I've always wanted to uh, pursue a, a more creative career. And now is the time to see if I can make that work.
1: It's a, it's wild because so many people and a number that I've talked to on my show have had similar experiences where they you know something happened in their career and because of that change they decided to go after something they've always enjoyed. They said, "Oh, you know, I've always kind of liked doing X and I'm just going to give it a shot." <laughs> it sounds like that's what happened in your case.
0: That that is pretty much what happened, and uh, I had been blogging uh, for uh, five years or so, four or five years before I was let go from that job, and uh, and so I had I had brought writing back into my life, but on the on the side, and so then I I began to develop the the blog more, and uh, also at the same time uh, I had been in the last year or so of my, uh, of my working there, I had been writing articles for an online magazine called the good men project. Uh, and, uh, literally just after my, my job shift, an editorial position at the good men project opened up for an ethics editor. So I rose my hand, raised my hand, signed up and said, I'll, I'll, I'll be that. Uh, I know, I think I know a thing or two about, about ethics and, and, values. And so that turned into eventually an executive editor position at the Good Men Project for about a year after that. And I continue now as senior editor ethics. So I'm, I'm back more in a content role and not in a, in a management role there.
1: So many people are very familiar with the Good Men Project. But for those of our listeners who haven't heard of it, tell us a bit about that.
0: So, the good Men project uh actually started as a as a book uh by uh by a guy named Tom Matlack who had an, an interesting uh career he sort of went to a to a high point in in finance and then a low point when he uh he, he woke up on the street somewhere uh, hung over and realized that he needed to change his life and he uh, ended up interviewing—I I think I have the story right—interviewing a bunch of um, men uh, who had fallen on hard times, and um, talking to them about their stories and who they are and what their sense of of identity was, and and you know what they saw in the mirror when they when they looked at themselves in the morning. And it, he then brought the idea for the book to uh, a marketing guru named, named Lisa Hickey. And he said, I want you to edit my book and publish the book, which she did. But she said, you know, your concept of creating a community for men who are struggling a little bit with their identity in this modern shifting world will translate much better to the web than it will to a book. So Lisa turned the the Good Men Project book into... A, an online publication which now uh, publishes uh, close to 40 articles a day uh, by a wide range of authors, both men and women, uh, on lots of different topics. Uh, those include marriage, uh, divorce, uh, all aspects of relationships, health, ethics and values, uh, sports, uh, social uh, activities, parenting all sorts of different things, all, kind of trying to address all of the concerns and needs of the modern man who is finding his way in a society and culture that is radically different from what it was uh, not only 50 or 60 years ago, but even even 20 years ago as, as we see uh, societal shifts. And the really great thing about the Good Men Project is that it is a community and it's a, a collective of writers and there are probably six or 700 writers, you know, who are contributing to the, to the site at any different time. And so you get this amazing variety of perspectives and uh, and writing styles and uh, just a, a, a wonderful kind of sea of content to dive into at any given time.
1: Fantastic. And I know that you mentioned one of the things that the Goodman project focuses on is relationships, which has become an area of expertise for you.
0: Um, it it has, and more through life experience than through studying it. But I guess how, I mean, how do you study relationships other than, uh, than living them? Uh, so I was uh, married to my first wife for 15 years. Uh, I didn't realize until very close to the end that I was in Uh, you know, what a a textbook, classic dysfunctional marriage, dysfunctional relationship. And it took a number of years of therapy and, and a fair amount of reading about the subject to learn what these uh, dysfunctional and and hurtful patterns were in the relationship to learn who was responsible for them to take responsibility for my contributions. uh, And then to be able to write about it um, not from a position of complaining or uh, or blaming uh or simply being unhappy about it but in a way that is helpful to people who may be experiencing the same thing and are wondering why am i unhappy in this relationship you know I- i'm trying or it seems like my partner is trying or uh you know i'm always blaming my partner or my partner's always blaming me for what's going wrong And, uh, the, the dynamics of, of dysfunctional relationships, you know, if you're, if you're completely unaware of them can, can be pretty complex.
1: So what you're getting into and and I'm, I knew we were going to get to this because relationships are, you know, so central to your writing. This is something that applies to men and women in terms of this writing.
0: Yes. Yes. So my, my writing is not, Directed specifically at at men, uh, the uh, the articles that I've written uh, and the and the books that I've put together uh, are geared for uh, both men and women. And in fact, in the in the comments on many of the articles that I published on the Good Men Project, many of those comments were from uh, from women who had experienced uh, this sort of thing. Um, I think, though, that it is a little bit harder for a man both to recognize and acknowledge that he is in a dysfunctional relationship and particularly an abusive relationship. If the abuse, let's say emotional abuse is coming from a woman, uh, because that's not supposed to happen to guys. I mean, we've got tons of movies and TV shows and there's all sorts of stuff now out in our culture about women who have gotten the short end of the stick in relationships, and that happens a lot. Uh, there's no, there's no question about it. And we need that literature out there, and we need those resources for women who are suffering. But there is less for men, and I think that men can be very reluctant to admit that uh, they're in a relationship where where they're really suffering,
1: or perhaps they don't even, as you alluded to, they might not even know that they're fully in a dysfunctional relationship. So, so let's take it back to there. You know, obviously we get feedback from those who are around us, but for those that might dismiss the feedback or are more isolated, how does one begin to make those realizations? How does one begin to realize that they might be in a dysfunctional relationship? And then we'll go through the steps in terms of what to do.
0: I remember Uh, One of the blog posts that I wrote, uh, sort of a breakthrough blog post for me, um, not in that it got tons of page views or anything, but that it really helped clarify my thinking. And I I believe it was called Situational Dysfunction. And it started out with the idea that you're you're in your relationship and you just know that something is not right. You have this little nagging feeling that you can't get rid of that something isn't right here. This relationship is not working the way that it's supposed to, or that, that, that I think it should. I, I'm not happy, but, but it doesn't have to be a, a, a huge thing. You know, it, it doesn't have to be explosive. It, it's more uh that, that nagging sense that something is, is just off and you, you can't seem to shake it. And what really helps uh, is to try to get some perspective on the dynamics of of the relationship and by the dynamics i really mean the interaction between both people because in a lot of cases, somebody will say, "Well, you know, I'm unhappy because you know my partner's a terrible person or my partner's always mean to me or whatever but there are there are always two sides to it and and if if the dynamic of the relationship involves a lot of conflict, a lot of argument, a lot of fighting, a lot of you know dismissal. Um, I have an article on emotional withholding if one partner tends to stonewall the other. those are all really unhealthy dynamics and when when things like that happen, very occasionally or, you know, once or twice in, in a relationship that happens to everybody, but it's when you have a pattern that you really have a problem. And so you either have to be able to step back from your own relationship and either journal it or, you know, look at it in that way and look for the patterns, or you have to do it through therapy or, you know, or if you talk to a friend about it constantly and the friend reflects back to you and says, you know, this happens every week. You know, you're calling me with the same story. You, you have a pattern here where, you know, something triggers this, you engage in conflict with your spouse, the conflict is unresolved and, and you're unhappy. And it's, so uh, it, it's being able to kind of see it from that perspective that it's not the argument that you're engaged in, in the moment, because that argument uh, is basically going to take up all of your emotional bandwidth during that moment. But being able to back off and, and see that there's a pattern of conflict, and particular unresolved conflict, is, is definitely a, a sign.
1: Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. We'll be right back to our interview after this. Hey, Daily Helping listeners. Dr. Richard here, and I am so excited to share with you something that we've been working on for the past 18 months introducing personal helping, which we created because everybody struggles with something. Want to lose weight, improve your relationships, or overcome long standing obstacles? Then you need personal helping to smash your goals. Personal helping utilizes a system developed by myself and my team of behavioral science experts, which incorporates the principles of neuroscience as well as technology. While personal helping is not therapy or medical advice, our personal helpers provide a unique perspective and accountability, which can reinvigorate your life. Personal Helping sessions are conducted in real time via video conference on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Go to thedailyhelping.com and then the Personal Helping section where you can download the Daily Helping app and sign up for your first session today. And now, back to the show. And Tom, you mentioned a number of strategies that people could use, you know, from journaling to discover those patterns on our own, listening to the feedback from those people like friends as an example who are important in our lives. Uh, you also mentioned therapy as a potential good way of finding that finding those patterns. But let's say, you know, and let's let's pretend therapy is not part of the equation yet. Once a person man or woman has found the pattern you know that they you have come to the realization that you see some things in your relationship that are dysfunctional what do you do with that information how do you how do you go from knowing it to taking action
0: well i think the the first action that you really need to take is to try to look at your own contribution to that dynamic are you triggering it in some way and it's important here to distinguish between triggering and causing when when you cause something you're really 100% responsible for that action that event that result when you trigger something you're stepping on a landmine that was already there you didn't put the landmine there you didn't necessarily know that the landmine was there so in that sense you're not really responsible for the explosion because you're not the one who put that deadly thing in the ground but an action that you took unwittingly or, or unknowingly uh, set, set this thing off. So in, in many cases, there are things that people say or things that people do that then interact with the triggers that a, a partner may have that then start that conflict. After a while, though, you have to think about, well, are you consciously or maybe even subconsciously on some level triggering that conflict because you get something out of it because you get an argument with your partner that you know maybe you think ends in vindication for you you get an argument with your partner that ends in makeup sex Um, you get an argument with your partner because it's the only time you talk to your partner all day because you two have grown so far apart and that conflict, that argument is substituting for intimacy in the relationship. So, you know, this is this is what I mean by it's, it, it, it tends to be complex. You might be saying, well, you know, every time I, I mention this, you know, my, my, my partner's always mad at me about this thing, or, you know, she always gets upset and starts to yell. But on some level, you may be triggering that yelling and that fight because there is some payoff in it for you. And that's, that's where, where you as a participant in that are really as dysfunctional as your partner is in, in engaging in the dynamics. So to, to break it, you, you have to stop doing that. You, you have to see what these triggers and flashpoints are and, and, and try to stop doing it. The other thing that is very important is, um, often when, when people get into conflicts, they do what is called flooding. After the conflict starts, their brain overloads, and they're really incapable of handling that conflict or discussion in, in any logical way. They just start reciting a script. It could be you know, from something they experienced in childhood, you know, w- whatever the reasons are. But then the script plays out over and over and over again. And so when someone has flooded, You really have to walk away. You cannot engage in the conflict at that time because it will play out the same way over and over again, and that's what what drives people crazy and and drives people apart.
1: And as I'm listening to this, and the flooding is a great example because essentially, you know, you, you referenced it in terms of you know a script that keeps replaying itself. But in essence, you know, we like anything else in our brain when we have habits. We map neural pathways, essentially. Yeah, right. There are actual physical structures in our brain. And so, you know, these are longstanding, deeply rooted, integrated into personality at times, I'm sure. These are big, big things that don't just go away. What do you do if you become aware of these patterns, but your spouse is unable to recognize them in themselves?
0: That's that's a hard thing. Uh, you can try to make your spouse or partner aware of the problem. Uh, you can do that in the, uh, appropriate ways for communication between partners. When, when you say this, it makes me feel when, when this happens, I end up feeling this way. You know, you, you try to do it in a way that, that really isn't attacking your partner or we're putting blame directly on them. Just, just trying to say, look, you know, we, we, we have this problem here, and, and and when this happens, you know, I, I feel like getting in the car and you know driving a hundred miles away because I don't I don't want to be here and I don't want to leave, but I also can't stay when when this is happening. Uh, you can encourage your partner to get therapeutic support. You can try going through some of the uh, some of the books uh, that people have written about. Uh, high-conflict relationships. But ultimately, and this this sounds a little bit selfish, and it, it's the same message that they give you on the airplane when they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first, uh, you have to make yourself healthy. You have to look at your own unhealthy behaviors that you've brought into the relationship or that have developed in the dynamic in the relationship, and you have to fix them. And your partner will either Start to gravitate to this new way of relating, this healthier way of engaging in a discussion, uh, or he or she won't. And that's a risk that you have to take. If your partner's capable of evolving and growing and and overcoming uh, these, breaking through these dysfunctional patterns, then that's great. Your relationship is going to be much, much better and much happier than it was before. If your partner for whatever reason, can't overcome that and continues to engage in the patterns, even when you're trying to break them. Then, then you have to make a decision as to whether you want to stay and engage in that or whether you want to leave.
1: It's interesting. I, I know that there's there has been some good research that talks about couples therapy and that you know the outcomes are actually worse when one of the partners goes to therapy, but the other refuses to versus not going at all. Uh, that, that is to say, you know, that, that your, your marriage is likely to survive if nobody goes to therapy than if just one person. Uh, but what you're saying is that it, there might be a point that it just can't be fixed and, and that you need to be aware of that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Um, and uh, one one of the things that I... Wrote in one of my blog posts is getting out is not giving up when staying is giving up on yourself. So because a lot of people are also trained, well, you know, I'm not a quitter. I don't walk away from anything. I'm in this forever. And and, and the marriage vows themselves, till till death do us part, and you know, in sickness and in health, and we have to work through all these things. And that is all well and good. And and people should absolutely try to work through their problems and not just throw away a relationship that has a long history and and children and shared experiences and all of that. But that being said, if you're miserably unhappy and if you're doing the work to try to bring happiness back into the relationship and to bring sense back into the relationship and your partner isn't either willing to do that work or capable of doing that work, uh, then I think, at, at least in, in 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 my value set, I feel that you are free to walk away from that kind of dysfunction, to walk away from that kind of unhappiness. Because really, at that point, if you recognize it and you're aware of it, and you know that there's this unhealthy dynamic in this relationship, and your partner can't change it, if you stay in it, you're doing it to yourself. And you know, I, I qualify that because I, I would never blame. You know, people who are in a relationship and suffering emotional and physical abuse. I'm. I would never blame the victim in that sense. But I'm saying that when when one reaches a certain level of awareness of these dysfunctional patterns, if you are actively deciding to stay in that, uh, you know, when you haven't the the opportunity, the means, the wherewithal, et cetera, to leave, then then you are in a sense saying, "This is what I'm. This is what I'm bringing into my own life."
1: That makes a lot of sense. And and there actually is, you know, just to talk a little bit more research here that's relevant. I'm aware that there's data that suggests that if a couple stay together in a dysfunctional relationship, it's actually much worse for their children emotionally than if the couple were to get divorced and be happier overall individually and then kind of co-parent effectively. So it's uh, what you're saying makes a lot of sense.
0: I, I agree with that. Uh, I think that children grow up uh, with the parents' relationship as the model, with the patterns of communicating and interacting as the model. I mean, how many of us who are parents uh, now find ourselves saying and doing things with our kids that we thought we would never say or do because our parents were doing them when we said, I'm never going to do that, you know, and then, and then we find ourselves uh, doing exactly the same thing. So those those patterns kind of get hardwired in our brain. And if conflict is is what we knew as, as a child, constant argument, uh, and we we never saw healthy conflict resolution, uh, then how how are we going to learn that? It's 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 very difficult. Uh, and so I think uh, it it does do children a, a disservice in my opinion, for couples to stay in relationships that are that are truly unhealthy that way.
1: Well, that's really good information, Tom, and I know you've got a couple of books that you've written. Tell us a bit about those, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Uh,
0: so I have written two books, uh, and they're both compilations of articles that I wrote uh, over a couple of years for The Good Men Project. I did not realize when I started writing intensely for the good men project that I was going to write a series of related articles about dysfunctional relationships. But, but that's what I ended up doing. And they did just sort of flow out of me, uh, the way that a lot of writers will say, Oh, well, you know, this, this just came to me, or I, I, I felt that I was taking dictation, uh, when I was, was writing this stuff down. So As I looked back at those articles, I realized that they they were linked and and they did work together uh, to help readers develop an understanding uh, of dysfunctional relationships and how to navigate them and what to do about them. So the, the first book is called Why It Can't Work, Detaching from Dysfunctional Relationships to Make Room for true love. And I actually think the most impor- two most important words in the title of that book, or actually in the subtitle, are make room. Because if you are in a dysfunctional relationship where you're unhappy, there is no room for healthy interaction. There is no room for whatever we call true love and all the uh, you know, trappings, uh, of that, uh, ha- happy interaction, uh, peace, contentment, um, you know, real, real connection and, 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 int- and intimacy with people because the, the dysfunction short circuits all that and it, and it gets in the way of that. But if we're not aware of what we're in and what we're experiencing, then we just think, you know, maybe we have an unhappy relationship or, you know, we, maybe there are these, these, Landmines that that we one or the other of us keeps stepping on, and you know we just have to stop talking at, about those things and uh it, eventually if if you do that in a in a relationship if you have too many landmines or too many holes i um, I'm going to switch metaphors here, but I use the metaphor of a of a blanket or a fabric if if there are too many holes in it it it, it just falls apart it won't it won't hold together so uh you you can't really allow that to happen to your relationship or you won't have one. There'll be nothing to talk about. You'll, you'll sit and watch TV with each other. And that'll be, uh, sort of the sum total of your, uh, of your interaction. So, so d- detaching from dysfunctional relationships is really about understanding these dysfunctional patterns, uh, you know, arguments that never end, um, never knowing what to expect from your partner, uh, your partner going silent on you, uh, things, things like that. Um, and, and feelings of feelings of hopelessness. You know, this kind of links into depression in some ways too. And then learning to detach first first from the dysfunction. You know, that's step one is is detach from the dysfunction and stop participating in it. And then you see whether you're going to detach from the relationship or not. And you know, I, I did title that book purposely in, in, in the sense that you can detach from a dysfunctional relationship with your spouse eliminate that dysfunction or or reduce it and end up in a very happy relationship with your spouse. You know, it's not it's not necessarily about leaving one person and uh and, and finding another one. And then the the second book which is, you know, focuses more on on love, uh, what is love? A guide for the perplexed to matters of the heart. You know, so many people in these dysfunctional relationships when asked you know, why are you staying with him or her? Well, because I love him or because she loves me. And this word love is used as the answer to everything. Love conquers all, you know, well, or, or worse, you know, and probably, you know, we've, we've all heard this either at some point in one of our own relationships, or maybe we've heard it from other people. You know, if you loved me, you would. And that, that, Number one is a huge red flag for me. I I think proofs of love are are just really, really horrible things to to ask for. But defining a relationship in, in the context of love and saying that because one person loves another, that we have to put up with all of this other stuff strikes me as completely wrong. Uh, you know, if, if you go back to scripture, love is patient, love is kind, love is all these wonderful things. Love is not An endless argument. Love is not uh, not talking to your spouse. Love is is not uh, you know some of the even you know subtler forms of of emotional abuse. Trying to control what somebody eats or drinks or what they wear or things like that. None of that has anything to do with love. That's that's obsession. It's control. It's uh, it's it's um, you know lots of other different dysfunctional things. So in, in the second book, I pulled together a group of articles that. I believe help people understand what is love and what isn't love and then they can look at their relationships and say well this this isn't really a very loving relationship and how do I how do I create that whether either with the person I'm with or, or ultimately with somebody else
1: Tom I know that you are working on an actual novel and you're doing some other things for TV and film could you talk to us a bit about those sure
0: uh, i'm I'm working on a novel uh that uh is about love and relationships uh love love lost and and found again uh as you can imagine the main character does get stuck in a dysfunctional marriage for a a good chunk of his life and he and his first love from before all that uh, are struggling to reconnect uh with one another and, and trying to, uh, see if if they can, uh, first of all, find each other, but then ultimately, you know, they're both seeking healthier partnerships than the ones, uh, they were in before. Um, so that's in process. And then with my writing partner, I have, we, we wrote a TV pilot that has many aspects of, of that same story, although it's, It's really more her story in, in that's, you know, she, she's drawn more from, from aspects of her life that the female character is, is the main character in the TV pilot. Whereas I would say in the, in the novel, uh, the, the guy is, uh, is the protagonist.
1: Very cool. Tom, any timetable in terms of when these things might see the light of day?
0: Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, the novel is uh, is slow going. I I work on that uh, when I'm not teaching writing at the local workshop here in Westport or working with some of my clients whose whose books I'm helping them either either write or edit. And uh, the TV pilot we've we've sent it out to some places. We're we're uh, we're sending it out to a few more places and looking to get some traction on that.
1: Very cool. Well, hopefully uh, these show up on our bookshelves and then on our TV sets sooner than later. Uh, Tom, we're pretty close to time here and I'm really grateful that you came on to this episode to share your expertise on relationships with our, our listeners. Before we wrap up, as you know, I always ask my guests, what is their biggest helping? So what is the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after listening to you today?
0: I would say, Dr. Richard, that it's what I have up on the wall in my kitchen uh, where I look every day. Uh, It's something that I wrote to myself when I got out of my uh, dysfunctional marriage. And it's three words. Make conscious choices. Uh, There are so many choices that we end up making in life uh, that are really not conscious choices, choices where we're fully aware uh, of, of what's happening. And, uh, people will say, Oh, you know, I, I ended up in this or, uh, you know, I've, I've been in this for a long time. It's, it's when we really start to look at our life and say, well, I, I can change that if I want to, I can, knowing what I know now, Make a conscious choice to, to do things differently, you know. Sort of from from this day forward, you know. I, I think of um, I, I think of two things actually in, in relation to that. One is uh, the the famous line from Casablanca, where uh, Bogart is asked, you know, why he came to Casablanca, and he says, "Well, I came for the waters." And uh, <laughs> the guy says to him, "But Casablanca's a desert." And he says, "Well, I was misinformed." <laughs> right. uh, you know, so so in many cases, we we really don't have enough information, or didn't have enough information to make decisions. And relating to that was, you know, a- after a while, as I was kind of getting ready to, to to get out of that marriage, I asked my therapist. I said, "Well, h- how did I end up in this, and h- how did I make a choice that was so?" you know bad for for lack of a better word not saying that you know my ex is a bad person but just you know a, a bad choice for me to to enter into a relationship that that had so much conflict and he said to me you know Tom you made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time so that wonderful statement is a way of erasing the guilt that we may feel for having spent Five or ten or fifteen or twenty years in a relationship that really caused us a lot of pain, but also, uh, you know, in in many cases has a, a lot of of joy and, and and positives to it as well. Uh, but but the flip side of that statement is okay. Now that you know, uh, you have the opportunity to make a conscious choice and decide: Do you want to stay in something for another twenty years that you're going to be unhappy in, or? do you want to make a change either by changing the dynamic of your relationship and making it better or by changing the person you're in a relationship
1: with? Great stuff. Tom, where can people find you? Uh,
0: they can find me, uh, at, uh, on my website, Thomas G Pfeiffer, that's F I F F E R.com. They can find my articles on the good men project and they can find my two books on Amazon, uh, either searching for me by name or uh, why it can't work or what is love.
1: And for those of you who are driving, we will have in the daily helping notes for this episode on our website and in the app, all of Tom's information, including links to his books, which you can purchase. Really great stuff. Again, I'm really grateful that you came in here and we're on our show today. So, that's it for today to each and every one of you who tuned in to listen thank you so much for for checking us out if you like what you heard go subscribe to the show on itunes and leave us a five-star review this is what helps others find the podcast most importantly go out there and do something nice for somebody else even if you don't know them and post it in your feeds using the hashtag my helping because the happiest people are those that help others